we're looking at. The Song of Songs, uh, we're calling this series um, A Love Story. And as I said last week, uh, as, a, as a disclaimer, this, this is sometimes breaches on personal stuff. This is, um, this, this is stuff that hits us all differently. Um, so I'm going to be as careful as I can be, and I've done my best to be as studious as I can be. Uh, and I'm happy to chat at the door if there's stuff that you've got questions about afterwards. In fact, I would love to chat at the door if you've got questions um, afterwards. Today's subject um, is beauty, the idea of beauty. I wonder if I asked you to describe something beautiful, would you start by describing a person? Would you start, start by describing a beautiful scene? Would you start by describing a landscape? Or would you start by describing... Got no idea. I can't even think who that could be. Would you? It's Craig. Would you start by talking about the nature of a person or the actions of a person? If you had to describe somebody something beautiful, what is beauty? Human beauty is something we're really interested in. We consume loads of content about beauty. We spend loads of money and hours and scrolls looking at it or trying to be it or trying to stop it escaping from us. Something we want to hang onto. We are constantly presented with the perfect human beauty ideal. It is constantly in front of us. A couple of years ago, um, then considered the most beautiful woman in the world, Beyonce, um, included, I'm not going to sing, but I am going to dance. <laughs> Incl- I am really going to dance. Included this is part of one of her dance routines. I didn't think I'd go through with it, but there you go. She included that in part of her dance routines. And it probably was because it was a good part of a dance routine, but it was, she's a smart cookie, is Beyonce. This was more than that. This was a bit of a statement and a bit of a claim. She was presenting an image. I don't know if you've ever seen the picture of... Um, Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, and I might well be saying that wrong. It's a famous drawing of a chap in the buff, and he's got his hands like this and like this and like this. And Leonardo da Vinci was determined to find out the perfect, um, perfect human being, to draw the, the perfect human being. And Beyonce wasn't just idly making this part of her dance routine. She was saying, well, she was maybe nodding to it, or she was maybe saying, this is it. Or she was maybe saying, It's changed from a patriarchy, and it's now a woman, whatever you want. And as as you saw, as I sort of looked through the dance routine, as you see it, your head's turned, part of you is shouting, go on, girl. Maybe if if it's your kind of thing, you're like, yes, this woman's got it, It's it's a new thing. Or maybe, I think most of us look at it at the same time as you shout all those things, and a part of you is broken inside by the bar of beauty that Beyonce presents, you're like, man, alive, that is always going to be out of reach for me. We've, we've got an obsession with beauty, but we've got an uneasy relationship with beauty. Let me share a few stats that I collated. These are British stats, really. 60% of us, with regard to our bodies, think negatively all of the time. I, look, I saw, I said, can that be true? 60, over half of us are constantly negative about our body. 13% of us um, 
And I think this is a, like it's a powerful word when, when you sort of say it in this context. 13% of us are ashamed of our bodies. These are British people. And just under 10% have had sort of suicidal thoughts at some point. We have a really love-hate, obsessed, want-to-run-away-from relationship uh, with beauty. And I don't think... I don't think it's getting any easier. I think we're going to struggle with it more and more. Our phones are awesome. The things that we can do with our phones, the clever filters on our phones. We had an, we had an elders meeting in lockdown, which was ruined by a filter that one of the elders left on. And we couldn't bring ourselves back to the table afterwards. It was so funny. This one, it accidentally popped on. We can do all kinds of things with the filters. We can totally change our body can set the bar to an implausibly high limit all of the time. And I was reading a little report about an artist called Rankin. I don't know if you've heard of Rankin. He's a portrait artist. He did a few experiments, um, and he, he asked children to take... He took some pictures of children, and he asked them to sort of mix around with them till he thought they were social media ready. And the reactions to it and the amount that they felt that they had to change and the discomfort that it caused was just kind of shocking to a guy that's used filters all of his life. question I pose at the start of our chat about beauty is, what is it? What is real beauty? And how on earth, um, even as a 43-year-old guy who's not that into phones and everything else, how do we navigate this world where there is this bar of beauty that's presented in front of us. How do we get through it? How do we make beauty a blessing and not a curse to us? So we're going to look at this text. And part of you is wondering, what on earth can the Bible have to say about an insta-scarred, Kardashianized, beauty-obsessed world? So let's read together. Verse 5 and 6. Dark am I. Yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. So I'm going to do uh, what I did last time. I'm going to try and as best I can, talk my way through the, the poem and sort of explain it, and then I'm just going to add a few pearls in at the end. I think we get to see two things mainly in the poem. We get to see how she, in the story, sees herself. Her It's, it's essentially a, the first bit of the poem, anyway, is about self-perception. And then we get to see, see how he sees her. So I'm just going to um, try and open up those two ideas, how she sees herself and how he sees her. Firstly, she, I've got three words I've put over the way that she sees herself. The first one, I think, is that she's, she's ashamed. She starts off in an odd place, I think. She starts off by saying, dark am I, yet lovely. What she means by dark, it's probably important to be clear about this. She's not say, it's not a, a racist thing. She's not saying, am I, from, am I of, of African origin? She's saying, I am tanned. She uses the language of the tense of Solomon. She's like, I've, got, I've been out in the sun and I am tanned. Which, if that was today, we'd go for a tanned look, wouldn't we? You'd want to you'd get a suntan. But in these times, that wasn't the beauty ideal. The beauty ideal was pale skin, 
the beauty ideal was, can you look like you're going to have kids? Can you be of a rounder shape? It was that. It was rounder shape, paler skin. It wasn't slim like she, I assume, was, and dark skin. She describes her skin as like the tents of Solomon. And I kind of imagine, as I follow her, her logic, like rough, tough skin, but also not just rough on its own, but also quite beautiful. I think that's the kind of thing that she's getting at. But she's ashamed. I think it may, maybe it makes her look working class, the idea that, um, of, a, of a redneck. I don't know if you're familiar with the rednecks, that they were out in the sun and the back of their necks would get burnt. She would look like she was working class or she wasn't the beauty ideal, whatever it was. Because clearly she's pretty, but not pretty as the society wants her to be. And she says, don't look at me. Don't look at me. She's ashamed, I think. The second thing that I think we see, we get to see her lot in life. And the, the second thing I think that she is, she's, she's neglected. She's sad. We get to see how she got this tan on her face. And I think she strikes me as a bit of a Cinderella character. There's no father mentioned. The brothers are mean to her. And she's overworked. And she says, I haven't got time to look after my own vineyard. That's not a garden that she's got. She's been metaphorical, I think. She's talking about herself. This woman's got no time for herself. Like the lines of life are etched on her face in that sense. So she feels hard done by. She feels neglected. She feels sad. The last thing that I think we see, and this is skipped over in, in chapter two, just skipping on a little bit, the next time her opinion of herself comes round. Chapter two and verse two, she describes herself. And the first time you read this, it looks like it's going to be a complimentary thing. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And you think, oh, that's nice. Anybody that describes themselves as a lily of the valleys, it's got to be a nice thing. But the problem is the lilies of the valley were everywhere in this part of the world. They were just, I mean, it's a pretty thing amongst hundreds of thousands of pretty things. So I think the last thing that we, she says about herself or she feels about herself is that she's really ordinary really contemporary things to say about yourself. Aren't they neglected, ashamed, ordinary? don't know if that's ever come your way. Yet, she is a bit of a Cinderella character. There's a robustness to her. I love the way she, she maybe faces this. She's not kind of wanting to stay stuck there in this Cinderella story. She wants to get out of it. So read with me verse 7 and 8. Tell me, you whom I love, and I kind of imagine her shouting off to him, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? And then her friends reply, if you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your goats by the tents of the shepherds. There's this sense in which she's saying to herself, I see, I see my lot right now, I see where I am, but I'm not going to stay here. And I kind of, I don't know if I take poetic license too far, but I imagine her making her way up to wherever he is. And then the story changes to his perspective and he sees her. Read with me a few verses. I liken you, my darling, and I'm going to come back to this. I won't start here. I've made a few faux pas in my life. I've said some naff, Jude will tell you, I've said some naff romantic things. I've got off on the wrong foot. I, from my perspective, don't go near a horse if you're talking about a woman. But I liken you, my darling, there's a bit of a cultural shift, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. 
Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. And then verse 15, I'm not sure if you've got this one on the text, says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. And then we hear her interject, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And then he says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. How does, how does he see her? We've thought about how she sees herself. How does he see her? First, he sees her as beautiful. I mean, he's, gents, if you're listening, ladies, if you're listening, I don't think a gent's going to receive this. Maybe he will. I don't know. Receive this very well. Don't start off any kind of compliments with horse-related imagery because it's not good. It doesn't translate very well, but I'm assured by the scholars that this was a hefty compliment in these times. It's this idea of wild beauty that this woman's got. Then, we talked about this last week, there is a, a literary, literary device that he uses here, I think, that just it shows increasing closeness and increasing connection between the two of them. So it starts off in the third person. So this is, I think I've lost track of what the verse is, but maybe hopefully the tech team will keep, keep up with me or you can just follow along. He says, I liken you. So it's third person. Then he gets a bit closer and he says, your cheeks are beautiful. I think that's second person. And then he says, first person plural, we will make gold earrings for you. There is this increased connection between the two of them and there is an increased revelation of her beauty. The nearer it reads to me, the nearer he gets to this woman, the more beautiful he sees her to be. The nearer he gets to this woman, he says, we're going to go off and make gold earrings. The more time he spends with her, the nearer he gets to her, the more he wants to adorn her. And the more he adorns her, the more beautiful she gets. So first of all, he sees her he sees her and them together as beautiful and getting more beautiful. The second thing that he sees, I think, is he sees her as pure. He says, your eyes are like doves, my darling. Eyes are like doves. Could mean just like flittery. Could mean that. Could mean like just nice and white. Could just mean like that's kind of a pretty bird is a dove. I, I think with eyes... I think following the logic of the language, if, if you're to comment on somebody's eyes, you've got to be up pretty close to see somebody's eyes. You've got to be pretty intimate with them. You've got to have a good relationship if you're going to look at somebody's eyes. Jesus would describe the idea of doves as being innocent and pure. As pure as doves. I think the imagery here is of this couple getting closer and closer together, and the closer they get, the more this guy realizes how pure and innocent this woman is. That's what he's saying to her. Your eyes are like doves. I think, I think, the last thing that he says, and I think this is the most beautiful thing. She describes herself as a lily of Sharon, just one of many lilies of the valley. Pretty, yes, but pretty ordinary. And how does he respond to this? In my eyes, he says, you are like a lily among thorns. It's that beautiful, lovely way. I had this once with one of, one of my mates. He was pointing out his new girlfriend. This is back when I was a, a young'un. 
And he pointed out, I'm in amongst this group of girls, and he's like, it's the stunning one. And we were like, which one? Which one's that? But it was to him. To him, she was stunning. In his eyes, she was stunning. It's that kind of idea. This guy sees this woman, and he says, well, maybe you're like all the other lilies of the field, but you've totally captured my eye. I see you as different to all the rest. Just two pearls to pull out of this story. Two pearls, I hope. Two helpful things, anyway. I've been really careful how I worded this sentence. I wanted to be careful how I worded it. Outside of perfect relationship, outside of perfect relationship, and by perfect relationship, I, I feel like saying godly love and connection, or maybe the agape love that we read about in the Bible, this just selfless kind of love. Outside of that, I think beauty eventually always decays. Outside of that perfect relationship, perfect, godly, agape relationship, beauty always decays. One of the real sad facts of life is that you reach a certain age when things start to wrinkle up, droop, fall out. It feels like your hair is working against you sometimes. Do you know what I mean? It feels like the, at one point in your life, hair is a bonus and it's a, it attracts people towards you. And then you reach a, particularly you reach a certain point in your life where it flips the other way and it's like it's working. It's trying to repel people away from you. We are getting older. Beauty is decaying. Beauty is fleeting as we read in the Proverbs. But I think what we're getting at here is more than that. Outside of perfect relationship, beauty eventually decays. We've learned a lot from Love Island over the years. <laughs> Didn't think that'd get a laugh. There you go. We've learned a lot from Love Island over the years. One of the things that it tells us, amongst the many wisdoms that Love Island has presented us with, is that even the best-looking people with the most perfect teeth and the most fantastic house to stay in, even they turn ugly, look ugly to each other if relationship is not there, if it's just about how they look, if there's no other connection, if there's nothing else. It's really, really ugly to watch. I mean, we'll still watch it, but it's, re it's really ugly to watch, isn't it? One of the things you could say is, so a good example of this, and maybe there's better ones, but one of the examples I've thought about is, is pornography. One of the things you say about pornography is kind of what is the, what's the ultimate harm? What's the, what's, what damage is being done by pornography? You get to have a kind of explicit relationship with a beautiful person or many beautiful people without breaking any laws or really damaging anyone. Except because we've separated out so fiercely the idea of relationship and connection from beauty. It, it's been ruinous for blokes, particularly blokes, I think, over the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 years, just because there's no connection with the real person. And it's ruinous as well for self-image, historically, of women as well. It's just been a decaying influence on our society. When we only esteem others or ourselves because of our looks, it becomes decaying, either 
it eats away at us because we're not as good looking as them. Or it makes us shallow because all we want to do is be as good looking as them. Or we age and end up embittered. It always decays. Jesus lovingly warns us against investing all of our energies and all of our treasures in things that decay. He says, don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust decay. And yet we as a society and as a culture invest massively in stuff that decays and rots. Separating out relationship from beauty. Thinking we can just go up and gaze at it on its own and it means nothing. Jesus says, don't. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And it'll just break down the line. So that's the first thing. Outside of perfect relationship, beauty eventually decays. The last thing that I think we see is that inside perfect relationship, beauty multiplies, flourishes, increases. Inside that perfect, agape, godly relationship. And I think we maybe glimpse it in friendships and relationships on earth. We glimpse it. Inside perfect relationship, beauty flourishes. It's, it's so lovely, I think, to see the way this chap looks at this girl. At all of the points that you would expect him to start to turn cold and turn away, he finds more beauty and he looks harder and he looks deeper. Normally, and think about the, the passage so far, normally getting close Spending time together, building up a relationship means you reach a point where you start to spot flaws in the other person's beauty, doesn't it? You get to a point where you start to go, well, that's not quite as pretty as it used to be. There's none of that in this poem. The closer they get, the more connected that they get, the more beautiful she becomes in his eyes. There's not nearly always a point, at least there is for me, when the adornment of the woman stops, or it's a lot less frequent. But he spends more and more time with this woman, and he just lavishes her more and more. Normally, in a relationship, when you get close, when you spend enough time together, you realize that the person that you're with has actually got some flaws and isn't, what is the language that he used? Pure, innocent as doves. Normally, in a relationship, you go so far down the line, and you reach a point and goes, oh, you're not... You're not all that you're cracked up to be, are you? But in this relationship, this guy says, the closer I get, the closer I get to eyeballing you, I see that your eyes are like doves, and I see that you get more and more innocent. Normally in a relationship, after you've seen each other for a while, it gets to the point where you start to take each other for granted, where maybe you become ordinary in each other's eyes. And in this love poem, They've been together for a while, and she still stands out as the apple of his eye. I think we see this glimpsed in some relationships that we get, some relationships that we have. I watched a lovely episode of 24 Hours in a and &E. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I seem to go for that show. It's a late-night show. Um, and there was this lovely elderly couple, and he was on the, he was on the bed, and he, he looked like he looked beaten up. He looked beaten up, and he had been beaten up by, by his health. 
And yet all of the staff referred to this couple as Romeo and Juliet because she looked at him like he was the most beautiful creature that had ever lived. The way that she talked about him was like they'd only just met, like they were 16, 17, at the peak of their beauty. Why? Because this beauty was being acknowledged inside of relationship. And even though he'd aged, and even though he'd been beaten up, even those flaws looked more and more beautiful. We get it in friendships, sometimes lifelong friendships, even really annoying bad habits that we have. They even become beautiful. They even become points of contact. Why? Because of the strength of the relationship. One of, one of the most hope-giving moments of the Bible. I'm going I'm to share it with you now, and it's, it's found in John chapter 21. I think we've got it on the text. I just wonder if you'd read that with me. Have we got John 21? I'll just read it out if we don't have it. That's great. This is after, so after Jesus has, has, has died. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, gave it to him, did the same with the fish. This was now the third time he'd appeared to the disciples after he'd been raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that he loved you. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. The miracle of this, in part the miracle of this, is Jesus is, is alive. That's kind of what the story's telling, but that's only half of the miracle of this. I think as I've read it, reflected on it this week, the miracle of this is that Jesus still loves this bunch of lads after what's just happened. Jesus is still completely besotted with this bunch of disciples. He's lived with them inten intensely, intimately for three years. He knows all of their foibles. He knows all of their shortcomings. He's seen all of them lose their temper. And he got to the point where he was heading towards the cross where they all left him, all of them. And yet what question does he ask Peter? His love for them is never in doubt. He's cooking them breakfast. He sought them out. This was the place where he'd first met them. It's almost a revisit of the first day. It's clear that he loves them. What he's asking of Peter is, so do you love me? He still sees them as beautiful. He still sees beautiful things for them to do. He still sees them as pure 
and holy. He can't get any closer to them. He can't see any more of them. But because of the relationship, he still sees their innocence. There's a holiness journey still for them. He still sees them, even though they've proved themselves just the same as everybody else. He still sees them set apart. They are set apart for a work to do. Jesus says to Peter, go and feed my lambs. There's still things for you to do, beautiful works. You are still beautiful in my eyes. I've had a real problem digesting this. Because when you, die, when you preach through this stuff, you reflect on your own life, whether physically attractive or just the nonsense that you think and do. You think, man, if people could know the depths of me, nobody would ever let me get up here and speak. And yet Jesus knows all of that about me. And I connect perfectly. And as we will do as we take communion together shortly, we connect perfectly with this story. He's, because of our relationship, because it's not just about beauty, because there is a connection between us and him, he still looks at us and sees beauty. He still looks at us and he can get close enough to eyeball us. And even though we've done terrible things, he can still see us as pure. And he still, praise God, sees us as being set apart. How are we going to navigate this beautiful mess that we're in? We need to know that beauty is more than skin deep. We need to know that beauty is connected to who we are. And we need to know that God the creator, as Jesus shows, cannot take his eyes off of those who he loves.